I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Dolly, what is this? You are listening to Francesco Dance Remix, made by my friend Max Pritchard. Very talented man. You can follow him on Instagram, as well as Max. Very funny, very buff. Thank you, Max. And thank you to everyone who tweeted in all their thoughts and theories on Francesco and whether he is a sentient cat or a ghost cat. What was the general consensus? I haven't seen these. Ghost cat. Oh, God, they're really... They're stoking this, aren't they? (laughs) I was really hoping that our sub-editor, Abby, who mans our inbox... I was really hoping that Abby would let us know that the owner of Francesco had been in touch. I don't know why. I really hoped that maybe word would get back to Francesco's owner. But but no, because Francesco, the sound is still ringing like a daily bell. And actually, CJ pointed out, if you listen to last week's episode, there's one point when I'm blithering on about something semi-serious and you can hear... <laughs> the sound of Francesco in the background. In fact, maybe we should offer a free beret, a high-low beret, to the first listener who can spot the exact time code in which you can hear Francesco. 100%. A beret, or perhaps a tote bag if you prefer, if you can find that time code. Kudos to anyone that attempts this. (laughs) We're enjoying a little bit of an Indian summer, aren't we, today and yesterday? Very thrilling. Boiling. I'm not sure if I like it. I was quite geared up for autumn. It's not lasting, don't worry. Oh, is it not? No, is it apparently it's this week. Yeah, apparently it's. I'm not even sure it's the whole of this week. Apparently it's fading out again. Uh, so you'll be back to enjoying autumn with just one other household. Ugh. The rule of six return. <laughs> the rule of six returns, and yet I'm going to a Van Morrison concert next week. How does that work? I don't understand it. I've given up trying to understand it. I've had so many voice notes from frustrated friends, families, neighbours, people I don't even know I've been receiving voice notes from about uh, how confusing this is. So it's best just to not even try and understand it anymore. No. And also, the point is, obviously, anything that curbs the spread of the virus, great. It's just the messaging of it is so fucking baffling. Like, I just don't understand why... I'm not allowed to see... How many households is it, Panda? can only be two households, so the Hilo cannot record... Yeah, so, so we can't record the Hilo, and yet I'm going to be socially distanced in the Palladium next week, singing along to Brown Eyed Girl. I just riddle me that. I do not understand that. 
Oh, just thinking about Brown Eyed Girl, though, makes me happy. I know, I know. Well, Glorious. hopefully it'll go ahead. Van Morrison, infamously grumpy. I wonder what the social distancing measures will do to his grumpiness How on stage. How old is he now? Oh, 150, I think. No, that's absolutely unfair. Let me look that up. <laughs> I, OK, I guess 78. He is... Do I get a beret? 75. Oh, didn't get this right. Not close. No, 75. Spring chicken. Same age as my pa. Mine too. He can can still do a great high kick, Van Morrison, apparently. Anyway. Can your dad, though? (laughs) (laughs) Tony Alderton sadly cannot. No, none either. We had some great explanations of old English phrases in the Hilo inbox this week. One listener wrote in with this one. In Shakespeare's day, children slept on shelf-like benches, which would be attached to the wall. When one was married, they would move from their shelf to a marriage bed. Those who never married would never have the luxury of having a marriage bed and thus would be forever left on the shelf. What a fact, albeit a... Depressing one. Speaking of metaphorical shelves, actually, could I read out an excerpt of the Agony Aunt column you wrote on Sunday, answering a woman who wrote in to say that she was worried her 34-year-old daughter would be left on the shelf? Of course, that's so sweet of you. you. Thank you for reading it. Well, we don't often flag each other's work, but this column had a huge impact, I think, because you really hit on something. And it's something we talk about on the high-low a lot, this idea that a successful, fruitful, fulfilled life is still only possible when a woman comes of a certain age if you are partnered up. And I think your column really speaks to a conversation that is starting to happen but really needs to be happening more that a good life can and should be spoken about in more varied forms i think there's just a collective frustration about it and also the thing that i said in the column is you know you don't a woman in her 30s is not going to forget (laughs) that she's got a limited time window for having children that's not something that this world has been patriarchally built brick by brick It's been built specifically to make sure that a woman never, ever forgets that, that she is filled with terror every day from the age of 30 to 45. So if she's not filled with terror, and that's something that she's learning to be rational and balanced about and maybe even discount entirely, then she really, really doesn't need further reminding. I'm going to read Dolly Alderton here. Quite strange (laughs) reading your writing to you, but here we go. What you should find most reassuring is that your daughter evidently has a very full life. You mentioned friends, a career, her own home, varied travel. You describe someone who is ambitious as well as kind. My friend Helen's mum once said, getting married is the easiest thing a woman can do. And I'm inclined to agree with her. It is easy to sleepwalk into a relationship with no personal standards because of fear that time is running out. It is hard to build a life for yourself and invite someone in who you love and respect, who will treat you with the care and kindness you deserve. Instead of worrying that she isn't going to end up with someone, be thankful that your daughter hasn't settled for someone who isn't right for her. It sounds like she's a woman who wants as much from her partner and future co-parent as she has sought in every other part of her life. It sounds like you have raised a woman who likes herself. That's reason enough for a good night's sleep. Oh, I loved hearing you read that. You make my writing sound so much more clever than it is. <laughs> I have to say, it's a very sweaty thing reading someone's writing to them because when you write, <laughs> you imagine certain pauses and then hearing it in someone else's uh, 
language. I wish I'd got you to do my audio book, Panda. (laughs) I'd have loved to have done that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for that, Panda. And also thank you so much to the listener who wrote in to tell us about Poetry on the Tube. Poems on the Underground was founded in the 1980s. The editors and curators of the movement are Judith Chernake, Cicely Herbert and Jared Benson. Imchaz Darker joined after Benson passed away in 2014. Together they have published pamphlets and a book of collected poems from those they have published on the Underground, which I would highly recommend reading. Thank you so much for that letter. We also received an email about the history of garage music and we've also been enjoying all your tweets about the garage you've been listening to. I think Garage to Millennials is the great nostalgic uniter. Garage music came out of the cultural activity of second-generation African-Caribbean youth culture in Britain and was an amalgamation of Chicago house, soul, R&B, funky and other genres which have all come from underground black music and dance cultures in the States and the UK. DJ EZ, the prominent black DJ, is credited with popularising Garage at one of his club nights. The Garage scene was part of the pirate radio scene in the 90s, which was an important cultural byproduct of the racist incapacity of UK mainstream radio to play any urban music by black musicians. Garage was the empowering precursor to grime. And then she goes on to recommend a book called Inner City Pressure, The Story of Grime by Dan Hancocks. Thank you so much. That is so interesting that it's the precursor to grime. I am obviously completely dense about music, as anyone listening to last week's podcast slash all podcasts will know. So that is incredibly interesting for me. Thank you very much. Following on from last week's conversation about how they were using Perspex screens to snog on EastEnders. Sorry, Dolly, I'm still waiting for the photographic evidence of that from my mum. News has come in that in The Bold and the Beautiful, which is a soap in the States, such a good name for a soap, um, has gone one step further. Cast members are snogging mannequins instead. Oh, I don't. There's a really funny clip of uh, the cast member Lawrence St. Victor, who plays Carter Walton, kissing a dummy in lieu of his lover, Zoe. And um, it I think you can quite clearly tell it is a, it is a dummy. So um, <laughs> that has gone viral. God, the indignity of acting. <laughs> can you imagine actually doing that in front of a room of people? I, nothing, honestly, nothing would surprise me of this year now anyway i then fell down a bold and beautiful hole do you know anything about the bold and the beautiful no it's like, never heard of it it's like a very iconic soap in the states i'd like vaguely heard about it um but had never really given it much thought it's about a glitzy family called the foresters who live in beverly hills and there have been 33 series of it and it begun Ooh. in the year of my birth 1987 god those american soaps they just run and run and run don't they well, I suppose EastEnders and Coronation Street and all of those have been going longer, haven't they? Actually, I suppose. Yeah, that's true. I don't think The Bold and the Beautiful would like being compared to EastEnders, though. <laughs> it's a bit different. <laughs> More news from Beverly Hills. After 14 years, The Kardashians, the programme rather than The Family, is ending. It's the show that changed both television and redefined our definition of celebrity. Mm. You are not the only person who feels <laughs> no, I'm baffled I'm that sorry. they should have an opinion. No, I don't. Ha- Look, let me really examine what I think about this. Um, 
it will be 14 years is a long time. And that for lots of young women, particularly of our generation, that would have taken them from mid teens into their 30s. That is a long time to spend in the lives of a family. Um, I imagine a lot of people are devastated about it. Listen, I meant it when I said you're not the only person who feels baffled <laughs> that they should have an opinion on this. Because as I don't I, want to be I don't want to be a snob because I know it really matters to people that show. No, I don't I don't think you're being a snob. And actually I was I was busy thinking about, you know, what does it say that it's ending after 20 seasons? Yeah. What what does this mark? What does it mean for culture and society and the world, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? And as I was thinking all of this, I read an opinion piece by Rosa Lister which made me laugh out loud about the tendency to overthink this. It can't just be that Keeping Up with the Kardashians is coming to an end after 20 seasons. It has to be the show that changed celebrity culture forever is drawing to a close. There is a kind of sunk cost fallacy at work, a desire to justify the attention lavished on this family over the years by lavishing still more attention on it. That's very smart. I think that is what it is. It's justification, isn't it, that we've lost of the investment. so many years of our life to this family. Yeah, I remember seeing a tweet once. It might be one of my favourite tweets of all time, actually. That someone said, everything I know about these Kardashians, I have learnt against my will. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd say that about most things in this world. It's true, but like, even when you don't, even when you're actively not seeking it out, why do I know, why do I know that Kim Kardashian was on ecstasy the night that she did her first sex tape and the day of her first wedding. Why do I know that? I didn't know that. There are all these things that I know. And I've, I think I've watched half an episode once of that programme and I, I don't follow any of them on social media. <laughs> I, well, I hadn't heard of the sunk cost fallacy before, but I agree, it's really interesting. And I loved what um, Rosa wrote about this obligation to have an opinion on the Kardashians, mm. which even you felt there, like you really valiantly tried to give me an opinion. And actually yeah. what you gave was just like a mathematical calculation of years. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember once talking about the Kardashians or Kim Kardashian specifically to a man in his 80s, a friend of my parents, because I think he felt like we should be talking about them. And it was just, I remember thinking... Why are you subjecting yourself to this conversation? <laughs> because I think what it is, is it, as always, I'm interested in why they have captured the attention and fascination of the masses. And when I say masses, I really do mean masses in a way that transcends, you know, background, age, interests, class, ethnicity, just like it, it's so all-encompassing and transcendent the the interest and intrigue that this group of women have provoked and for such a sustained period of time and I do find that quite like occasionally I'll go onto one of their Instagram pages just to try and crack it it's really well lit photos of them in sort of beige activewear or bodycon I just don't I can't quite get it I am really interested by the Kardashians and I've written about them a fair amount. So I'm definitely in that category of finding their impact. Um, 
culturally, aesthetically, they've had a huge impact on what we come to define as uh, beautiful or attractive in, in women's bodies. But I think what I meant and what I loved about Rose's article is there is a there is um, a sort of weird misunderstanding that everyone, if not interested in them, should either love them or loathe them. Yeah. But you have to have an opinion on them in a way that we don't expect anyone to have an opinion on anything else. That's how so omnipresent true. it is. So true. Like indifference seems more unacceptable about the Kardashians than it is about like nearly any sort of government legislation. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm just thinking if that can be applied to other things. That's basically the idea that we ratify our wasted time or wasted money with false motivation. Is that what it means? So it's like the reason that I have wasted all this time or money or whatever is because it's given me this thing. This is such a good theory because actually I think that people do this a lot about reality TV. Like, you know, when you read... Those articles, those kind of defensive articles every year when Love Island comes out of people talking about, you know, why if you loved the work of Jane Austen, you should love Love Island. or You know, just that sort of like convoluted justification. And I actually do really enjoy that kind of analysis and theorising. But sometimes I do think like, oh, come on, let's just, we can just enjoy stuff because... It's like adult Peppa Pig. Do you know what I mean? We just like the colours and sounds and we find it, you know, escapist or whatever. But that's what's so interesting, I think, about this sunk cost fallacy is actually I don't think we just do it with reality TV. I think we do it with so many things now because time has always been a precious commodity. But more so than ever now, our time is kind of commercialised and politicised. And we have to find reason now for all ways in which we spend time. I mean, I think that's what's happening with wellness a lot of the time. People can't say, oh, I went to yoga or I enjoyed a sound bath because I was curious about what on earth a sound bath was. It has to be, well, I went to a sound bath because I've heard that it's really good for my skin and will help me sleep better at night. That's not correct. I know a sound bath is not good for your skin. I just don't know what it is good for because I've never been to one. But I think we do, as you say now, this kind of post-rationalisation process of absolutely everything we enjoy. Even doing a spring clean now, I love a spring clean, is something that you do for your mental health. It's a meditation. Yeah. And do you, know, do you know what else, the reason why, you're, when you're saying that, I think the other reason is, it's the increasing lack of privacy of activity. So, because now there's a culture of activity being completed for discussion or for evidence of self it's an act of identity it means that there is a need for justification whereas in the past you could just have three consecutive deliveries and no one really has to know about it other than the people that you live with you wouldn't have to say it's an act of self-care yes there's a lot now of i consume therefore i am yeah so the sunk cost fallacy is actually a byproduct of just telling everyone everything, basically. Yeah. You don't need to justify things if you keep them private. Anyway, that's a fascinating piece. What a good piece. Yeah, and a fascinating concept. I think we're going to keep... I can imagine both of us thinking about that quite a lot now. I know. And seeing it in ourselves. <laughs> I know. 
I wonder if you and I text each other our sunk cost fallacies quite a lot. Oh, I think you probably do. <laughs> <laughs> In more serious television news this week, there was nothing short of a complete meltdown over dance group diversity's moving rendition of the death of George Floyd on Britain's Got Talent. 15,500 people complained to Ofcom about it at the time of the record, which apparently makes it the second most complained TV moment of the last decade. Uh, the most was apparently Celebrity Big Brother's Punchgate. That, that's extraordinary. What was the... I don't understand what the reason... What was the reason for complaint? What was the controversy? Well, I, at first, I misunderstood and I thought that the main reason for complaint might have been that it was very triggering or painful to watch on television. I quickly realised that uh, this clip, which is, is very moving, I didn't watch it live, but you can, you can watch it as a, uh, you can watch it on YouTube, which, you know, it's storytelling through dance. From what I can see, the complaints are from people complaining that a family entertainment show is no place for political commentary. That is so depressing. I, I find that so depressing. Me too. Me too. Because that's not political commentary. It's it's just a conversation about a human rights crisis, like a human rights emergency. It's not an opinion. It's just a fact. But that's the problem, isn't it? That the death of a black man is considered politics, that racism is politics. And that's not something that should be brought into the cosy mm. living rooms of people, probably white people. I, I don't know the ethnic breakdown of the complainants, but I would imagine, and please, yeah, of Ofcom, correct me people. if I'm wrong, I would imagine that a lot of those complainants, if not almost all, were from white people. Because it reminds me of that saying that what is political to you is personal to someone else. Yeah. If you have the luxury of saying, ooh, not in my living room, not in my life, thank you very much, then you have the privilege of turning away from racial discrimination mm. or acts of racial violence rather than it not being something you can opt out of, it being your lived experience. I can't believe that it's the second... When you think of all the stuff that you would have seen on TV in the last I decade... I know. I, I it, can't... I'm absolutely astonished by that. Well, it's really, really sad. And the dancers and diversity have said that they're devastated by the reaction. Ashley Banjo, who is a diversity dancer and the presenter of Britain's Got Talent, posted this response. And he's also since received racist abuse, he says. A lot of the negativity and the nastiness and the racism shows exactly why this performance was needed and exactly why this conversation that is now arisen from it is necessary. Racism is very real. I knew it before and I definitely know it now. Like after this performance, everything that we've received has been, I don't know, it's been actually, it's been overwhelming in a negative sense sometimes. It's been tough, but still, like I said, standing strong and feeling so happy that we, that we opened it up because if that's what it takes, then that's a price I'm absolutely willing to pay. I have some lighter mad news for you. The world's first digital modelling agency has arrived. What is that? I don't understand what that is. It is a modelling agency purely for robots. So as a brand, you would robots hire... Robots that live just on the screen. 
Yeah. So as a brand, you would hire a robot model instead of a real model. Okay, but they're not robots in real life. They're just they they're like digital creations. Yeah, they don't come in. Through, uh, uh, uh. Yeah, no, no, no. They don't like come on to set and have their makeup done, which is why some people love them because you know they don't. You don't need to book a studio for them. They never turn up late. The agency is called Humane, spelt H-U-M, full stop A-I. Can you see what they did there? Full stop N. And it's launched with three female models, a white woman with white hair, a red head with green eyes and very densely covered in freckles and a black woman with vitiligo. And they look human except for their eye colour. Here, take a look. I've just sent you the link. Okay. Okay, I have some questions, Your Honour. I feel like I'm not going to be able to answer these, but shoot. Time's gone by when we were kids, you would occasionally have Miss Piggy or Bart Simpson advertising a product. And I imagine that financial gain would be to the creators of those characters and the people who perform the voices or who have the hand up Miss Piggy's arse or whatever. Who, who is gaining, who, who, who is getting money from this? The AI agency who created this. Okay. Okay. It's the, it's the same with, because digital supermodels aren't new per se. Well, supermodels are, but digital influencers aren't new. There's Lil Michaela, who I think we've spoken about before. I've written yeah. about her before. She's a computer... She's a CGI influencer who's done brand partnerships with Samsung and Calvin Klein. She's made out with Bella Hadid. She's gone to Pride. She's very politically engaged. She speaks about Black Lives Matter. Um, and there are others as well, like Bermuda and Shudu. And they are made by... Um, so Michaela and Bermuda are made by an, ad- an agency, a US agency called Brood. B-R-U-D. So they right. make the money. Every time Michaela gets booked for, you know, a campaign or an influencer partnership, they obviously have to mock her up in the clothes, eating the hamburger, write the caption. So they would get paid rather than the model. I think what I just love about this so much is, you know, when we were growing up, there was this real sense of like the geeks are going to take over the universe. Like I remember really yeah. feeling that. Like there was a boy at my school who just like never, ever socialised with anyone and he never left the classroom because he was just like coding and setting up all these like online businesses and lo and behold, he was like making proper money by the time he left school as a sixth former. And I love the idea that now like essentially coders might be getting the same sort of money and glamour that Kate Mostard in the 90s. <laughs> I thought you were about to say, and lo and behold, here's Elon Musk. Not that that <laughs> timeline-wise would, would, would match up. No. I'm pretty sure you went, went to school in the UK. I'm and really he's torn asked on me it. To be, he's asked me to be godmother to him and Grimes's child. No. <laughs> no, I just find it interesting that, like... This is how much that that kind of like hyper specific hyper intelligence like now dominates. Like they really have taken over the world. Those people that were good in our computer classes in a way that I'm like, 
good on you. They're, they're, they're behind the supermodels now. They are the supermodels. I'm really torn on the whole kind of CGI influencer thing because Michaela is actually a pretty good role model for teenagers. So she's eternally 19. She's like the Simpsons. She's eternally 19. She's eloquent and she's passionate. and She's very politically engaged, as I said, and she's very um, into equality and uh, human rights. But I do wonder about a generation growing up with a robot as an idol. Because obviously for us, it was Kate Moss. And there was, of course, issues with that whole heroin chic era, as it was known, that fetishization of extremely thin, often ill-looking white models. Yeah. But I do wonder what impact does it have on women to compare themselves to someone who's computer generated, who will never be late for a booking or have a period spot or a breakup or cellulite, unless, of course, her creators want her to have those things in order to make her relatable quote-unquote which is the catch-all term of the day Mm. I mean yeah that's a very valid point I think the the reason it's worrying is that it's specifically a beauty ideal isn't it so no one's worrying about whether they've got like the tits and the hair of Jessica Rabbit because Jessica Rabbit is specifically a cartoon in a fantastical world And it would be almost impossible to suspend your disbelief to a point where you compared yourself to her as sort of physical role model. I suppose what becomes more confusing is that these replicate humans so well and they are being used like human models, marketers and influencers. But do you think people, do you think that that line will blur so much that that people want to replicate and emulate digital creations? I don't know anymore. I thought, do you think that's possible? Well, people do seem pretty emotionally invested in um, Lil Michaela in in a way that I wouldn't have thought. You know, it, it says in her bio, robot, 19, robot. But people will write you know Instagram users will write under her pictures like I love you you're amazing you're real to me Mm, I've just called to mind my favorite quote from Peep Show which is about having little faith in the masses you know people like lager and nuts people like Coldplay and voted for the Nazis you can't trust people Jeremy support for the Hilo comes from Secret Spa all of your favorite treatments at home Secret Spa offers a full menu of at-home beauty treatments, including massage, manicures, pedicures, waxing, hairdressing and tans. When you use Secret Spa, there's no need to ferret around the city's salons for appointments. You can book from 6am to 10pm, seven days a week, and sit back and relax while your therapist comes to you. Perfect if you're working long hours or have children at home to look after. Secret Spa works with only the best therapists and also has several rounds of assessment so you can be sure you're in safe hands. They also wear full PPE and carry out the appointment under strict hygiene protocol. And although it does make practical sense to have beauty treatments at home when the public salons are under so much pressure, it's also just such a luxury to enjoy them at home. You can have your own music playing, you can drink your own tea, you can wear your least attractive leggings and t-shirt combo. To enjoy an exclusive £15 off your first booking, visit secretspa.co.uk forward slash Hilo. That's secretspa.co.uk forward slash Hilo. Thank you very much to Secret Spa. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'd like to talk about buffets, Pandora. Oh, I love a buffet. I thought you'd have some opinions on buffets. Love a buffet. I want a buffet right now. Oh, give me a buffet. Well, this is going to make your mouth water, this piece. Joel Golby wrote a piece on buffets for a wonderful collection of food essays called In the Kitchen, published on October 8th, which also includes the writings of Julia Annan, Yemisi Arabasala, Laura Freeman, Daisy Johnson, Rebecca May Johnson, Rebecca Liu, Nina Minja-Powles, Ella Risbridger, Rachel Roddy, Mayuk Sen, Ruby Tando and Julia Tertian. Joel's essay was extracted in The Guardian this weekend and it is Golby at his absolute finest. Panda, tell me all your thoughts on buffets. I know you've got plenty. My favourite type of buffet is probably Chinese food Mm. because I always really struggle with a takeaway or in a restaurant what to commit yourself to. Yeah. But I did once go about... Seven years ago, I went to Vegas and I went to an all-you-can-eat buffet and it was like at 12 p.m. They're quite expensive, all-you-can-eat buffets, so we felt like we really had to go for it. And I have never felt so ill in my life as I have for the next 24 hours after having eaten ribs, pizza, sushi, spaghetti bolognese, cupcakes absolutely everything in 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 the same sitting at like 12 and i got up at about 11 30 heaven delicious it's like an extreme sport when you do it like that i and and also a buffet is perfect for someone like me because i get i'm incredibly nervous about making the wrong food choice about having to commit to a whole plate of one thing i'm a picker well that is the correct disposition for a buffet have you ever been to the Pizza Hut buffet, the lunchtime, weekday lunchtime Pizza Hut buffet? I have, but I can't really think about that too much because I did actually have what I like to think of as a buffet fail. And I was very, very <laughs> sick, age 10, after having too many of those mini marshmallows in the ice cream bit yes. of the buffet. So I actually, I can't really, I'm actually a bit sad you brought that up. I feel a bit ill now. I've never been able to look at a miniature marshmallow again. Well, maybe close your ears because this tip that I have for you might make you feel a bit nauseous. I have an ex-boyfriend who was so obsessed with the Pizza Hut weekday lunchtime buffet that he worked out a hack for how you could pile up the salad bowl because they're actually pretty strict at that buffet with checking that your that your salad bowl is level. It's flush with the rim of the of the salad bowl. And he worked out that if you, if you, there, there was complimentary bread. And if you wedged the bread in a layer around the bowl, that it added a few more inches to the sides so you could fill it up higher. Anyway, I'm with you, Panda. I love a buffet. 
I love the abundance of a buffet, the limitlessness, the variation, the informality. I'm going to say it, the democracy, the democracy of a buffet. A buffet is a socialist ideal, I think, in many ways. And I also think it keys into sort of childlike thrill of going to a buffet when you were a kid, of there being this rare moment of freedom with food where no grown-ups were telling you what to eat or how much to eat or when you can start or when you finish or when you get up from the table. And Joel goes into all these kind of treats of the buffet and memories of the buffet and the reason he has always loved it as a unique dining experience. My theory of breakfast buffets, more than any other buffet at any other time, is that they reveal the deepest and darkest crevices of you, your true and real nature. Take my usual breakfast buffet order, for example. I linger near the fruit salads, the platters of melon, the pile of ice studded with single-serve yogurts, and maybe I'll take a small bowl of granola with arctic milk. I do not eat porridge from breakfast buffets because porridge from breakfast buffets has the consistency, and I imagine flavour, of the limp and grace to not of the medically dying. So I'll sit and eat this healthy meal with a thimble-sized glass of juice. Cool. Then, after a beat, I'll get up and just eat an entire fry-up and a small plate of four-minute croissant. Then, often as a sort of pudding course, just some continental-style slices of ham and cheese arranged plainly on a plate. Some compulsion will drive my body to do two things. Drink four or five cups of coffee, just because it's there, and also steal a small napkin of snacks to enjoy later. This is my routine at every breakfast buffet I've ever been to. Do you not understand? Do you not see the monster within me poking out? I sit and pretend that I'm a healthy person wishing to live a calm and structured life, the melon with yoghurt, some semi-healthy granola. And then a growl within me emerges, and immediately just reverses that, and takes on close to two grams worth of calories in a 15-minute interval, the fry-up situation, the raw plain slices of cheese. And I dread to think what inner turmoil the man three tables over from me, who was eating hash browns, plain, and a single crumpet, also plain, out of a bowl, psychotically, is trying to eat over and hide. What happened to him the day before he ate a dry, unbuttered crumpet out of a bowl? How did the day go after he ate four unsalted hash browns alongside them? Does he prescribe to a theory that the only possible method of day-to-day happiness is to start your morning on the worst possible note, because it can only get better from there? Or was his mind fractured in two by some great unseen trauma? We'll never know. Somewhere between my third and fourth coffee, he disappeared, and I walked away with three mini croissants in one pocket and two pan au chocolat in another. I've been obsessed with buffets since I was young, because my mother, who died and then we had a buffet at her funeral, was known to put on a good spread. A good spread and the ability to put one on is a particular niche point of pride among a certain group of northern women, who delight in being able to feed and satiate a room with around 20 to 35 poppins with nothing more than a £20 note, a friend who has a car with an especially big boot, two trips to town, one to Iceland, one to Tesco, and about three hours spent frantic in a kitchen, pouring out bowls of crisps. You could put a buffet on, and I could too, but people wouldn't coo over it, they wouldn't marvel. They wouldn't hold a honey mustard chipolata up, sticky and gleaming to the light, and ask us where we got them from. There are buffets, the genre, and there are buffets, the art, and in that regard, my mother was Michelangelo, was da Vinci. Oh, marvellous dedication to the buffet. It's giving the buffet what it deserves. He goes on to really vividly describe the annual birthday party his aunt holds at a buffet restaurant 
he writes about it with such scenic detail that you begin the paragraph starving with your mouth watering and you get to the final word of that paragraph feeling bloated and sick, uh, which I think is a sign of great food writing. And he finishes the piece by contemplating the future of the buffet and whether a dining experience which is so about contact will survive and movement will survive in a post-COVID world. And he finishes with this great, great metaphor where he says, you know, when you finish hosting a buffet and everyone goes home, you can't get rid of the buffet leftovers for days. Like a week later, you're still finding piles and piles of spring rolls with cling film over them. Uh, and a buffet is hard to kill. Let's hope so. And I actually really, I really enjoyed this meditation on that kind of communal, slightly claustrophobic experience, because those are the things that I think we're really missing at the moment. It's, you know, like dancing, clubbing, sharing food, being jostled at a bar, exercise classes, the smell of other humans, the feel of other humans, the the, the sensory experiences of being en masse. And a buffet is, I suppose, a great idealised symbol of that, isn't it? And I'm now really craving some coronation chicken, the buffet fave. Mmm, yum. What do you have as a veggie? Coronation celery? Um, no. What do you coronate? I haven't coronated anything. Oh, I know I that's bet, not the I, right word. <laughs> I bet they coronate cauliflower. Pandora sent me a very angry text this week to show me that cauliflower steak is back on, back on the menu. I wasn't angry. I actually sent it to you without comment. I produced it without comment because I wanted to see what... I didn't want to influence could, your response. I could feel the fury behind the picture. <laughs> no, no, I'm not furious. I love cauliflower. I just think a cauliflower steak is the most 2020 or 2019 or 2018, whatever the hell it came out. I just think it's the funniest thing I've ever heard. Menus with cauliflower steak, eight quid or whatever, written on them will one day exist behind a glass cabinet in the British Museum, I think. Or it'll be the spaghetti bolognese in the glass cabinet and cauliflower steak for the future. Maybe. Well, from buffets to cauliflower steak to Zadie Smith's new essay collection. There we go, low to high. Nice little link there. Intimations, which is a short collection of essays that she wrote during lockdown and is about her response and her thoughts to the events of 2020 so far. It's really interesting to see the corona content begin to land and also a little depressing because that shows that we have now been living through this pandemic for long enough that things are being written, published mm. and circulated. Dorno mm. Porter's diary of the last six months, Life in Pieces, just landed on my desk and I just bought... Uh, Alif Shafak's booklet about how to stay sane in the age of social media, also written during lockdown. And apparently Anne Hathaway is starring in a coronavirus comedy. Does that feel a bit soon? Uh, yeah, I think it does. I mean, I don't know if I want to watch that as soon as hopefully we're out of it at some point. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't feel like there's been quite enough distance from the mass tragedy of it to kind of find the comedy what's the rule tragedy plus time equals comedy i think we need a bit more time it's really interesting as well this rise in kind of booklet publishing because zadie's is it's very you know each essay is what six or seven pages it's kind of a 
booklet and Alicia Fax is a booklet and Yomi Adegake and Elizabeth Uva Benene who came on to the High Lows to talk about Slay in Your Lane, the Black Girls Bible, they have a booklet out called Loud Black Girls, 20 Black Women Ask What's Next. Emma Gannon's got Sabotage coming out about self-sabotage. Yeah. Elizabeth Day's got Philosophy. Otega Awagba's got Whites coming out in November. I like mm. it. It's taking the best bit of the internet. Well, I, I think one of the best bits of the internet, which is long-form essay writing, and it's making it a new genre in publishing. So it's meaning, hopefully, that some of those people that were writing long-form essays on the internet might be able to actually make some money out of it because often a lot of that long-form writing on the internet is not really adequately paid or perhaps it's not a new genre you know I'm not I I I don't know if it's a new genre but it's definitely one that feels like it's enjoying and about to really enjoy a moment I think it's it's not a new genre I think it's becoming more commercial isn't it which I think is great and and actually these essays by Zadie Smith I read it over a few nights it's you know big big weighty subjects you can't really get subjects much weightier but the form of it makes it digestible and I just absolutely loved this collection of essays I think it's exquisitely well executed in terms of how she organized her thoughts that aren't dogmatic enough to lean towards any sort of big theorizing but they still offer up very specific and poignant readings and reactions in a time of global upheaval and disaster and unrest that is a tough tone to strike and I'm making the book sound very serious it is obviously in part but it's also a storytelling spectrum in that it looks at the smaller more incidental ramifications to the virus and lockdown through different characters and precincts in her life and her wider community one of my favourites is Suffering Like Mel Gibson, which is... Oh, I loved sli- that one. Yeah, the slightly odd title comes from a meme that circulated during lockdown of Mel Gibson fully clothed uh, on the set of The Passion of Christ explaining something to Jesus who is covered in... He's wearing like a crown of thorns and a ripped robe and he's covered in blood and he's listening intently to Mel Gibson. And the text underneath reads, when your child-free friends explain how tough it is doing lockdown alone. (laughs) And she uses that meme to kind of dive into how people were feeling, certainly at the beginning or for a long time during lockdown, where everyone was feeling hurt and misunderstood. And she said there was a lot of kind of hurt clashing with hurt and people thinking, well, they can't possibly understand what I'm going through, et cetera, et cetera. And she tackles the hierarchy of suffering in this essay in a really interesting and calm and lucid way, but also the idea that suffering can be mediated by privilege. And she writes, suffering is not relative, it is absolute. Suffering has an absolute relation to the suffering individual. It cannot be easily mediated by a third term like privilege. If it could, the CEO's daughter would never starve herself, nor the movie idol ever put a bullet in his own brain. Early on in the crisis, I read a news story concerning a young woman of only 17 who had killed herself three weeks into lockdown because she couldn't go out and see her friends. She was not a nurse with inadequate PPE in a long commute, arriving at a ward of terrified people, bracing herself for a long day of death, 
But her suffering, like all suffering, was an absolute in her own mind and applied itself to her body and mind as if uniquely shaped for her and she could not overcome it and so she died. So powerful, that page. I sent that page, a photo of that page, to so many people that I know. As you said, so succinct but delves into something so enormous. I also just love that offsetting that poignancy that she is so honest about that very human very shameful very private exercise that happens in homes and families and friendships and couples which is working out who has it worse obviously I'm not talking here about economic hierarchy but that emotional hierarchy that I think a lot of people did during that time of well who's got it worse have the people with the toddlers got it worse or the people who are single on their own and not mm, going to see anyone mm, for three months mm. is it the people with grown-up kids or the people in happy marriages or the couples where they live in the same flat but they don't talk and therefore they kind of have a freedom of living separately it's like this very gnarly conversation that I think a lot of people were having well, circumstance and reaction are not linked, is her point. E- everyone's suffering is unique to them. That's the only thing we can conclude from it, I think, is what she said. Yeah. yeah, and I think really what the lesson, if there is a lesson to be taken from that essay, is that, which she kind of says at the beginning of it, doesn't she? Which is kind of like, all this suffering and reactions are valid, the exercise of sensitivity and diplomacy is judging who to share them with and when they should remain private. She's always very interesting on sharing and disclosure as well. Mm. Um, one of my favourite things when she writes non-fiction or talks about non-fiction is, you know, this idea of the stories we tell ourselves and about ourselves and who we tell those stories to. It's always about storytelling, actually, isn't it? When you kind of bring it back to her, what what's kind of the common thread, actually, a lot of the time is how we present those stories. Yeah, versions. Yeah, exactly. I found contempt as the virus really powerful as well. Mm. When she wrote about how contempt has played a part in coronavirus and how it's an obstacle in combating racism. It's an incredible piece of writing. And as you mentioned, she uses this really affecting metaphor of linking the events of George Floyd's murder and systemic and widespread racism with the language of viral infection. So contempt, a belief that black lives are less valuable than white ones, black people are to be doubted as default, that ravages through white individuals and systems of power like it is a virus and that this is a virus that's not going to stop itself without immediate and urgent intervention. She did a reading of it on her Adam Buxton episode, and I'm sure Dr Buckles will not mind if we insert that reading here because it's so powerful, the closing paragraph of this essay collection. I think it has to be heard in her voice. I used to think that there would one day be a vaccine, that if enough black people named the virus, explained it, demonstrated how it operates, videoed its effects, protested it peacefully revealed how widespread it really is, how the symptoms arise, how so many Americans keep giving it to each other irresponsibly and shamefully, generation after generation, causing intolerable and unending damage both to individual bodies and to the body politic. 
I thought if that knowledge became as widespread as could possibly be managed or imagined, we might finally reach some kind of herd immunity. I don't think that anymore. I didn't love all of this essay collection. I have to say I never finished Feel Free, her last. But I don't need to love everything she writes. What feels so special about Sadie Smith as a writer to me is that I don't love all of her non-fiction, but the bits that do impact me, I never forget. The way she thinks is so unique. Her non-fiction is so unfiltered and um, at times conversational, but her thinking is just so superior. The way she puts this flotsam of unnamed ideas onto the page with such brevity and clarity. And another example of her thinking, which isn't in the book, but is in that Adam Buxton interview that you mentioned that came out last week. And I can't stop thinking about it. She puts it into words in a way that I had not heard, but is absolutely not unique to her. I mean, she says it's not unique to her, is her response to the 90s music scene. And I want to insert this bit from uh, Adam's podcast as well, because I think a lot of people find it incredibly interesting. And she says it in response to Adam speaking lovingly about what he saw as the dominant 90s music scene, about David Bowie, who he's a massive fan of and talks about a lot on his podcast, um, and Oasis and Blur, what he saw as this very collective experience, but which Zadie says it never touched her when she was growing up, and it never touched a lot of her peers, she says. And here she explains why. Bowie, to me, throughout my childhood, adolescence and university career, meant literally nothing. I had a vague sense of who he was. Vague. But I can remember being in New York when I first published and I went to a party and I was thrilled and incredibly excited to see Iman, this incredibly beautiful African model who was smoking a fag and I went over to her and I got a fag off her and she was standing next to somebody and I was like oh whatever and then went back and I was with a a white writer and he was like having a heart attack he's like that's David Bowie and I was like oh is it had no this it belonged to a separate world and so the kind of Blur versus Oasis or that whole scene didn't know what it didn't know it had no idea what was going on in black music in Asian, South Asian music, in the Asian Dub Foundation, or any of this stuff. It was just oblivious. And if you were going to participate in the spirit of the 90s, you had to participate in that, in music that often you had no interest in or knowledge of, that had nothing to do with your the way you'd grown up, the records in your house. The, even when you got to the, you know, Cool Britannia, the question was, cool, but who's Cool Britannia? Like, there was also a, a really Cool Britannia going on, which I tried to write about in White Teeth, in, in all these little pockets that were nothing to do with that mainstream life. That's what the 90s felt to me, like an, an absence of discussion. It, it just wasn't visible. The life that so many people were living all over England, you, did, you played the game of spot the black person on television or the Asian person or whatever quote-unquote minority group you came from, your whole family rushed in to point at them and get excited <laughs> and thrilled and maybe, you know, record them on the video player, re-watch it. It, it was that kind of slim pickings. It, it's hard to um, create now. It might seem strange to the young, but, but that's how it was. You know, later I found out who David Bowie was and what an extraordinary artist he was, but these things were assumed at the popular level, that we were all watching the same things, all enjoying the same music, all reading the same, but that wasn't the case. 
Oh, she's so clever. One day I will maybe have a thought that is 10% as original and intelligent as <laughs> Sadie Smith's casual conversation. <laughs> she's just so smart. I love that whole episode. I've actually gone back and listened again to her words on gentrification, which was my favourite part of that podcast episode, which really feeds into her belief of this idea of contempt being so widespread when she talks about how one of the most powerful socialist actions a person with privilege can do is really embed themselves and commit themselves to their community and integration. So sending their child mm, to, to, local state school. to a local state school, mm-hmm. even if they have the money to send them to a private school. That, that is the act of change. That is the act of progression. Making sure that you shop in the local shops instead of plowing your money into just the Waitrose that popped up five years ago. I, I couldn't agree with that more on every level. And she articulated it so well. This is this is why Zadie Smith is so important and why I'm so grateful to have her in my lifetime. To be able to look to someone like Zadie Smith time and time again, not with everything, but with certain things I feel passionately about and know that she is masterful enough to articulate perfectly those feelings. And all the royalties from Intimations will go to charity and this edition The edition that we have just read benefits the Equal Justice Initiative and the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund for New York. Thank you for listening to The Hilo. You can write to us by emailing thehiloshow at gmail.com. You can tweet us at The Hilo Show. You can buy our merch at thehiloshop.com where all proceeds go to charity, 50% to Black Minds Matter and 50% to Freedom Charity. We will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye.